good, good to be back uh, with you. Um, I'm glad I made it. My, my wife's out of town this weekend, so there was a, a small small chance that the boys would have given me so much trouble I couldn't have made it to church today, but uh, it's, it's good to, to be here with you. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up and, and, and turn to, to the New Testament, uh, to the letter to the Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's all right. We'll, we'll put the words up on the screen, but, but let it be known that we love to give away free Bibles. So uh, there are some Bibles on the table right outside of the, the main space here, uh, and they're in the version that I read from. So you're welcome to grab one of those. You can grab it now if you want, or you can grab it on your way out. Uh, but would love to put one of those in your hands if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have a Bible to follow along with. Uh, at the beginning of, of this series, uh, I'm, I've been preaching through Ephesians now for just a few weeks. So if you're here for the first time, you're, you're jumping in at just the right point. Um, but at the beginning of the series, I, I told you and I, I encouraged you from up front to, to bring Bibles to church because I was going to tell you some pretty unbelievable things. Uh, I, I told you that this letter is just loaded with stuff that if I just told you, you would think I'm making it up. And so I, I encourage you uh, to, to do look at the, the Bible, because that's what we do here is we preach the Bible. And so today we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we've been working our way through this long section. We're done with this section today, uh, the, the, the long sentence in verses 3 to 14. But, but I want to just kind of catch you up, again, give you a quick context. We're, the, we're at the end of this little section where, where Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus and the, the churches all around it, basically has been summarizing what it means to be blessed by God. Uh, verse 3 told us that, that in Christ, that, that is if you belong to, to Christ, you're a Christian, you have all of these blessings. And then he goes on and he just, he just fires away, I mean like a fire hose at us. I mean he just blasts us, talking about how before God created anything that he had us in his mind and how he had chosen us to be adopted into his family and how, how Christ came and he, he died in order to redeem us and to bring us into that family and to give us forgiveness and, and, and how the plan is ultimately not just about about us, but, but how God will unite all things in heaven and in earth in Christ and, and make everything right. And so we're kind of coming to that, that, that conclusion of that passage today as we look at verses 11 down through 14. And as I was um, kind of preparing this, this week for this, I, I could not escape my, my upbringing in the 80s. Um, I'm, a, I'm a product of the 80s, love it. Uh, I don't know if I'm a millennial, I, I'm in that weird, I don't know what I am kind of thing. But, but for those of you that grew up uh, listening to your parents' music in the car, um, I grew up listening to my mom's music in the car, and a lot of that was just the good old 80s, right? I mean, 80s were good. And as I was uh, preparing for this, I, I could not escape the Stevie Wonder song, Signed, Sealed, Delivered. Oh, boom, got it, Nick, for the, for the star up front. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours, right? So this is that, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're, you're lucky, but th this song was, was kind of a classic, and, and it's signed, sealed, delivered, and the end is I'm yours, you know, speaking of love. And, and as we look at this passage today, that's really what I want us to conclude with, was, is this, this refrain in our own hearts that at the end of this just says, I'm yours. Like, God, I am all yours, Let's read Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and just pick up where we left off. Verse 11 going down through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. In him, that's Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we long for the, uh, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth to be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do just that for your people today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 2005, uh, the, the late Steve Jobs, uh, Apple, he wasn't late, he was alive at the point that this was happening, but he's now, you get the point, he's, he's now no longer with us. But Steve Jobs, the, 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 you know, the phenom behind all that is Apple and, and Mac and, and all that, in 2005, he gave the commencement speech at Stanford uh, for their graduating class. And, um, you know, great, brilliant mind. Uh, he was actually, he, in, the, in the intro of his commencement speech, he, he talked about how he was not a college graduate and how that shaped everything about him. And, and, and in, in, his, um, in his speech, he used three stories from his own life. And, and in the very first story, he was talking about how he was adopted. He was adopted uh, by this family, and one of the conditions that his, his biological mother placed on the family that was adopting him was that they would promise to, to, to send him to college. They thought that going to college was everything about the future, like that was what was going to make their son become successful in the future and secure him financially and all of these different things. And so Steve Jobs goes on to tell how his, his parents, who were you know, blue-collar, just hardworking, middle-class people, did everything they could to get him to college. And he talks about how in his first semester of college, he went to Reed College and it was expensive. He said it was almost expensive as going to Stanford and how it was just breaking his parents' back financially. And so he dropped out. And he was talking about how in that moment, in that season of his life, he, he had come to the realization that, that college was not everything that shaped his future, that, that there was more to it than that. And in the commencement speech, I'm just going to read a portion of it. He, again, context, we're giving a commencement speech here. So he's speaking to these young, bright minds, right? And he's trying to encourage them for what would behold them in the future. Okay, that, that's what a commencement speech usually is, is we're sending you out now into the future, and this is what Steve Jobs had to say to them. He said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, karma, whatever. Because believing that the dots connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart, even when it leads you off the well-worn path. And that will make all the difference. And the crowd oohed and awed. I'm not sure if you caught the kind of the, the flimsy hope that he was giving them, but let me just, just re, restate that, that part that really just rubbed me wrong. It said, you have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, karma, whatever. You see, Steve Jobs is presenting every worldview by and large. You have to just believe in something. The future is certainly unknown to many people. It is shaky at best, it is concerning at worst, and 
we have something that, that is offered to us to trust in that is so much better with, than what Steve Jobs was offering them. In fact, if, if you're here today and, and you knew something for sure, I mean, without failure, could secure your future, what would you do to have that kind of security? You'd do anything for it, right? If you could know the certainty of your future and its security, you would do anything to have that kind of deep level of security. Well, today's passage actually gives that to us. It actually offers us a secure future. You see, my, my conviction is that only the Christian worldview seen through the lens of the Bible, which we're going to dive into, can give you the assurance that you really want because we all want it. So here's the big idea that I want to communicate to you today from our passage, and it's this. It's that the spirit inside of you guarantees the future ahead of you. So the spirit inside of you guarantees the future ahead of you. If you want that kind of security, you are one of two people today. You either already have tasted and known that, which I'm hoping is most of us, or you're coming in here and you don't have that. And so my suggestion is that today you very well could have walked in this door incredibly insecure about your future and you can walk out these doors in an incredibly different position. So here's what the three things that you need to see out of this passage that will give you that deep and abiding security that you want. They are these. First, we're going to look at the inheritance. Then we're going to look at the seal. And then we're going to look at the guarantee. So first, let's consider the inheritance in verses 11 through 12. Uh, recently, Forbes magazine, you know, the, the Fortune 500 kind of financial magazine recently, and I think they probably do this frequently, but they, they uh, highlighted the, the wealthiest people in the world. The, the, the top, I think there was 10 of them. I'm only going to list three of them. The three top wealthiest people in the world, according to Forbes magazine, are Bill Gates uh, with Microsoft, uh, Amancio Ortega with Zara, which I guess is a clothing company. This was news to me. And then, of course, Warren Buffett from the, the financial investment, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And their figures, I mean, let's just, let's just put them out there. Bill Gates is worth a reportedly $75 billion. Uh, Amancio Ortega is worth approximately $67 billion. And then Warren Buffett clocks in at $60.8 billion. The wealth is extreme in those families, right? What if you, in some, you know, luck of chance, as it were, fell into that inheritance? Let's, let's use Bill Gates as an example. What if, what if somehow Bill Gates wrote you into his will? You, you know, you, you're, you're in the 75 billion pot, some, some form or fashion. But what if he put a condition on it? And the condition was you will get the inheritance, let's just say the fullness of it, let's say you had no family, the fullness of the inheritance only 10 years after I die. So he dies, you know the inheritance is yours, but in, you don't get any of it, not a penny of it for 10 years. What do those 10 years look like for you? It's one of um, certainly a little bit of maybe anxiety and expectation, you know what's coming your way, but is it not one of kind of this deep and lasting assurance like, if you lose your job at year six, are you, like, sweating it? Or are you, are you probably just going to, you know, find a, a job to get you by till year 10? I mean, if, if everything underneath you crumbles, but you know the inheritance is coming, doesn't it change about the, the way you live now? I, I, I think it does. Um, 
You see, the same thing's happening here. Um, Paul's been giving us this, these, these incredible, incredible and stunning teachings on what it means to be in Christ, what all these blessings are. And they're ours. They're ours now. We're, we're not waiting for, the f- for, for all of them. We get them in part now. Uh, but in today's passage, in verse 11, he goes on and, and he begins to elaborate on what it means to, to be in Christ as being in, in inheritance. Um, if, you, if you look at your, my version of it, yours may have a, a different kind of a nuance. Mine says that we have obtained an inheritance, and that is right. We have been given all kinds of blessings in Jesus, and he's, he's just elaborated on those. But, but there's actually this shift, and, and you'll kind of see it as we work through the passage, that's actually changing, and it's actually showing you God's perspective of you. You see, the verb that's used there, obtain an inheritance, is in the Greek, it's the aorist passive. Like, I don't like to throw Greek jargon at you, but it's, it's this grammarian jargon that basically says something happened to you. And so an alternative, and, and I would suggest, I think this is actually what, what the Bible's after, is that we have become an inheritance. In other words, yes, it is true that, that we have an inheritance. It's ours. You know, Bill Gates is, pales in comparison to the inheritance that is ours in God. But it also suggests that somehow we have become an inheritance. And, and you're thinking, well, how? Like, whose inheritance would I be? Well, the Bible tells us that, that we are God's inheritance. In fact, the way the Bible has spoke about his people from the very early stages on is that God has set his affections on his people from the beginning of ages, before the foundation of the world, until the end of times. In fact, that's what the whole thing is about, is pursuing his possession. Listen to the words in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, this is Old Testament. This is pre-Jesus. This is back in the day. This is how he was talking about his people. It says, for you, this is the Israelites at the time. We'll talk about how that expands. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, hear this, hear this language, for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. I don't know if that's new language to you, but I think it needs to fall fresh on us, this this concept that, that God would be longing for us to be his inheritance. Like, I know in in Christianity, we we talk about God and all his goodness to us, and, and that is wonderful. But the idea that God would long to be with people like you and people like me that, that, that in fact, he would call us his treasure, that he would want us. Here's how we kind of tie this, this biblical idea of becoming an inheritance to, to something that we, we actually now respond to, and, and it's this. If you are God's inheritance, he, he must be yours. He has to be. In other words, there is no kind of alternative. Like, like if God is going to move heaven and earth to make you his own, How shall we now live in light of that? How can we not give and be willing to give everything in order to have him? If you're God's inheritance, well, then then he has to be yours. Well, 
Well, let's, let's expand this out because what Paul's doing and what he'll do here in these next few verses is he's going to, to tease out how this expands beyond just the Israelites of old and it now expands to, to all of us. So let's, let's look secondly at the seal. Um, I don't know if you picked up on it when I was reading, um, but there was a shift in language from the we to the you. Uh, it's, you know, look at um, verse 13, uh, actually beginning in verse 12. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, to you and me, that's, that's not a big deal. Like, okay, Paul's talking about we, the people that are writing, and now he's talking to the church at Ephesus. No big deal. But, but what's going on behind the scenes is a big deal. What's going on behind the scenes is what was happening in the early church was there was this distinction between the Israelites of old, the Jewish people, ethnically, and the Gentiles, which would have been anybody outside of that nation. And between those people groups, there was a great divide. Uh, Paul's going to flesh this out for us in its fullness in chapter 2. But here he gives us this glimpse of this division that was actually happening in the early church because, because what Paul's saying is that we, the Jewish people, have this, but you also have it. And that was no, un, that was no ordinary statement. Let, let, me, let me put a little bit of, just a little bit of skin on this for you um, because we don't have Jew-Gentile relations going on in our church per se. In my family, we have some distinctions. I grew up an avid Pittsburgh Steelers fan, yeah? Joe's not here, but I know he's a Steelers fan. But I grew up an avid Steelers fan, and I didn't just grow up rooting for the Steelers. I actually grew up rooting against the Cowboys. So throwing myself out there, I know where I'm at. I know I'm, I know I'm outnumbered at this point, and I'm okay with that. Because the reason why is I actually married into an avid Cowboys family. And I don't underuse the word avid. I mean, we are talking committed fans here. And so I married into that. And so in our home, there is that distinction. You know, the Steelers, Cowboys distinction. And, and our children are feeling that tension as we're working through that. Listen, the boys like the Steelers. There, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. They, they are, they are going to be Steelers fans. Um, but, but, but the connection here is, is feeling that, that divide, whatever, whatever it is. And, and again, that's kind of a silly connection. But, but there's this deep divide that's happening. And what Paul's saying is, it is no more. There is no more distinction, Jew and Gentile. In fact, he, again, he's going to flesh this out for us more. And here's why this is so profound. The end of verse 13 Paul says that you, he's speaking of the Gentiles, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, if there were ever a hot topic and confusing subject within Christianity, it is that of the Holy Spirit. And, and the, the, the point of this text, and, and certainly the point of this sermon, is not to, in all of its exhaustive fullness, explain who the Holy Spirit is and what his work is, but, but I think it would, do us, it would serve us well just to, for a moment, talk about what, what, what Paul exactly is talking about when he says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, so who is this Holy Spirit? Well, well, first off, he's a person. He is fully God, 
And he is the, the third person in the Godhead. So we believe in our confession of faith, faith today. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so this is that third person of the Godhead. And he is a person, meaning he has a will. And he has emotions on some level. And he is worthy of praise because he's God in the flat, or he's God in his fullness. And so what is the work of the Spirit? Let me just simplify it by telling you two things that he does. He convicts us of sin and he convinces us of our need. So first thing that the Holy Spirit does is his role is to convict sinners. He's to show us how deep we have created this, this crevice and this, this rebellion against God. And so it is primarily his role to work that into people, to see our need for a Savior. He convinces us of that. He convicts us of sin, and then he convinces us of our need. And in doing so, his entire ministry is to showcase and highlight Jesus. He is all about Jesus. Like, his work is, if anything comes attention on him, flash it back on Jesus. He, he is the spotlight that is to be placed on Jesus all the time. And so for Paul to say that Gentiles are sealed with that, with, with the Holy Spirit inside of them, was nothing short of profound. Now, the language, uh, I'm just going to use the language of the passage because it's biblical and it's what it, they're telling us. It says that you were sealed. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a seal, but I want you to think of a stamp, not a Ziploc baggie. So that, that's typically two ways that people think of. Like, you know, a baggie is sealed like that. Well, actually, what the word's talking about here is, is a stamp. In fact, kings would have all had a seal, okay, like a wax seal that would have stated who they were, where they were from. And when they placed their seal on something, what they were doing was placing their ownership on it. They were saying, this is mine. And so here, Paul is telling us that the Spirit becomes the seal on the life of the believer. In other words, upon, and we'll talk about how this happens, upon believing, you become the possession of somebody else. You become God's possession. You become his treasure. And so how does that happen? Well, again, this is where maybe your background has clouded your understanding of, of the work of the Spirit. Uh, many traditions and church backgrounds will, will highlight this this strange or perhaps unique experience that has to fall on the believer, you know, the, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and all of those things that are bound up to it. But, but the text is very clear. Look at it again in verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, upon hearing the good news about Jesus and then putting your faith, putting your belief in that, in that moment, you were sealed. You were marked. It's two sides of the same coin, one event, simultaneously. We don't understand it. It's not always visible. It's not always experiential. It's not always emotional. But it does happen. And so what is the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? Let me, let me summarize it very briefly for you this way. You are more wicked and evil than you could ever even imagine, yet you are more loved and accepted than you could ever even dream. In other words, knowing how wicked and sinful you are in your heart of hearts, that's the work of the Spirit. Knowing that, 
How could a God love someone like me? And then on the flip side, seeing what Christ has done for people like you and like me makes you more loved and accepted than you could ever even imagine. And so that's the good news of the gospel. That, that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to believe how bad you really are, yet how truly loved you really are. That's the tension of the good news. And upon hearing that and believing that, you become somebody else's. You're sealed. You're marked. You belong to God. So if God seals you, well, then God owns you. In fact, as Christians, there, there is no part of us that does not belong to God. He's redeemed the whole man. He's redeemed your heart and your emotions. He's redeemed your past and your future. He has purchased all of you. There is nothing about you that he's not interested in. He wants all of you all of the time. That's what it means to be sealed. That's what it means to be a Christian. You belong to the king. He's marked you. He owns you. You're his. And that's the best news ever that we would belong to a king that could love somebody that much. And so here's, here's where I kind of want us to, 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 to get to the, to the assurance part of it. Well, how can I know that? Let's, let's look at the guarantee, verse 14. How, how can I know that I belong to him? Um, I don't know if, you know, home ownership's a kind of a tricky thing. We just purchased, it's technically our second house, but we went through the home ownership process about a year ago, and you all, if you've purchased a home, if you haven't, that's all right. Praise God, you're, you're, you know, you're not as stressed out. But the home ownership process is quite the process. And for us, at least, the, the most difficult process was the coming up with the money part, right? Like, everybody can sign all the paperwork and, you know, pick the house, but it, you got to come up with the down payment, right? And so... Um, the language of the, the, the passage actually here in verse 14 says that he's the guarantee. That I wanted to use the language of my version, but, but an alternate translation for that word is, is the down payment. And I think that just registers more for us. So here's the connection. When, when, you, when you scratch up enough pennies to put down a, a down payment on a house, you know, you feel like you've arrived on some levels, and then you also feel like you've been, you know, basically invaded on, like they've taken all your money, and so that you kind of feel like you've been pilfered for all, all that you have. But, but nonetheless, you have scratched up enough pennies, you've put it down on, on this house, and there's already immediately a, a little sense of ownership, right? It's something different. There's a feel. Yes, you're broke, but now you own a home. On, I mean, you really owe the bank, but nonetheless, you've put down this payment on something you intend to own. Now, only a fool would put down a down payment on a home and then say, well, you know what? I think we're just going to go rent for a little bit. Like, we're going to put that over there, and then we're, gonna, we're just going to do the apartment thing for a moment or two. Well, no. You put that down payment down, they take all your money, and you want to know the closing date, right? You want to know, give me the keys. I want this house. Listen, this passage is telling us that God put a down payment not only on you, but in you. And the down payment wasn't just money. It wasn't just a verbal commitment. It was part of himself. Listen, this passage, I mean, verse 14 tells us that God came into his people to guarantee he's coming back to take ownership. Listen, if God makes a down payment in you, you better believe he's coming back for it. 
He, he's not just, just throwing this out just casually. He's making a commitment to us. The Holy Spirit living inside of every person, everyone who would believe the good news is the guarantee that we have in this, in this passage. And so here's what I need you to ask yourself, and I'll, I'll attempt to tease the answer out, is how can I know that I have the Spirit living inside of me? In other words, if, if what I've said prior to this, namely that it's not some emotional, experiential type of thing, it doesn't have to be this ecstatic experience with strobe lights and fog and, and all of that, if, if that's not the case, well, how can ordinary Joe, me, know that God is living inside of me? And here's how. The short answer is your outer life is a reflection of the inner seal, in other words, your life will look a lot like the life of the Spirit. Um, the Bible talks about this a lot. I'm going to just tease out one passage for you, and it's in Galatians chapter 5. You don't have to turn to it. Um, I think we have it on the screen here. And it's that famous passage where, uh, again, the Apostle Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it talks about what it, what it exactly means to have the Spirit and to live in light of that. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You say, whoa, that doesn't necessarily describe me. Like, if I were to put some adjectives on my life, those are not the first ones that particularly come to mind. Nonetheless, this is what the spirit-filled life should look like. And so the, for the believer, this is a process. You don't believe, become a Christian, get filled with the Spirit, and all of a sudden everything's flowers and cotton candy. It's just not the way it works. You don't change instantly. But it is the duty and the delight of the Christian to more and more bear the fruit of the Spirit that's within you. And so earlier I mentioned how the Spirit convicts and convinces. It is the perpetual character of the Holy Spirit to constantly convict you when you're not doing that. And so if you're here and you want to know if you have the Spirit inside of you, you need to ask yourselves questions like, when I'm not like this, do I sense the, the, the crime that that is? In other words, am I pretending to be someone who I'm really not? And so the fruit of the Spirit describes what it means to be a Christian. So if the Spirit is inside of you, then the fruit comes out of you. And, and this is on a couple of levels. Um, one is, this is to be introspective fruit, fruit inspectors, right? Like, it is not your job to go around inspecting the trees all around us. Like, you, I'm not giving you the free range, like, well, let me tell you if you're a Christian. You know, how's, how's, how's that working out for you? That, that is not what I'm suggesting. But there is this internal introspection, am I bearing the fruit that God would have for me? Am I showing that the fruit of the Spirit lives in me. And when we're honest with ourselves, the answer is no, I'm not. I am not fully living the life of the Spirit. So does that mean I'm not a Christian? Well, no. In fact, the promise of security comes in the hope of the gospel. Knowing that you're more wicked and evil than you ever dreamed and more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine. That's the tension of the gospel. Um, 
kind of want to conclude with this. Uh, I've had a few interaction with financial planners. I don't think we have any in here. I'm not stepping on any toes that I know. But financial planners, I love them. I love planning financially. But I've had a couple meetings where, you know, it's all about networking. It's all about getting the sit down for you to commit to, you know, their, their firm, their financial firm or whatever. And I've had a couple meetings. And, and both of those meetings, particularly one that I have in mind, really, it, it was, it was um, how do I want to phrase this? It was emotionally provoking in this way. Here's what financial planners want you to do. They want you to dream about your future. They do. So at least in, in my encounters with financial planners, the way the conversation does not begin with how much do you need to invest and you know, all of the, you know, what's your investment going in. The way it begins is what do you want to do when you're 70, right? And they begin to have you cast this vision for the, for the retired life, for, for you know, they, they, they want you to dream. And so, you know, Heather and I were at this particular meeting and we began dreaming together. Well, I'd love to travel and I'd love to do this. You know, I think I mentioned being on a boat. I don't know, like doing some crazy things. And, and they get you to make these big vision dreams of your future. And then they come in with, well, if you want that to happen, here's what you need to do, right? And, and, it, and it works a lot of the times because, man, I'd love to do some of those things. And, well, if this is what I got to do, this is what I got to do. But the constant refrain of the financial ad advisor, at least in my experience, has been with your investments, you must diversify, right? In other words, you have to put your money in all kinds of different places and, and it'll all somehow work out and you'll get your dream and your vision. And I, I don't really get bogged down in the details, but, but the, the simplistic you know, advice is diversify your investments, Christianity tells you the exact opposite. It says there is no diversification. It's all eggs in one basket, namely the Jesus basket. Today's passage tells us that if we want security for our future, we've got to put all our eggs in the basket. There is no diversifying with, with Jesus. And I think there are some of us who walk into church, perhaps, maybe even for the first time today, and you've played the safe financial planning route. In other words, you're cool with Jesus. Like, like you know about him generally, and like he's a good guy, and, and you're okay with some of the stuff he says, but you're also going to kind of dabble in, in being a good person. You're going to make sure you do that right, and, and maybe some, some kind of mysticism stuff and, and, and some worldly kind of stuff, and you're diversifying. If you want true and lasting security, put all your eggs in this basket. Sell out. Um, do you want to know your future is secure? I want, to, I want to close with this passage. It's from Romans chapter 8. Um, I'm just going to read a portion of it. I forget what's on the screen. But um, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is pleading with Christians to know who they are. In other words, he's, he's pleading with them to know what it means to be in God's family. And he uses this language. He says that for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you're here today and you've heard the good news of your salvation and you are believing in him, in other words, you've put all your baskets in that egg, you are now a son and daughter or, or daughter of the king. You belong to him in all of its fullness. He has sealed you, and you now have the right to call him Abba. And I know you've heard the sermon on this from somebody, but that means daddy. I mean, he tells you to call him daddy. 
the master of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things says, you can now call me daddy. That's what it means to be filled with the spirit of God and to live the life in light of that. Let's pray and ask God to help us in that. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would give us that deep and lasting assurance that we belong to you. That there is nothing that we can do, either good or bad, that will change our status. That you have marked us, you've sealed us, you have filled us with your very presence, the Holy Spirit, and that you're changing us. Lord, I pray that we, your people here at Mosaic, would hear that good news and we would just rejoice. God, would you make us a people that are filled with joy, that know our lasting security is found in you and in you alone. Would you work that into us and help us now? And we pray these things in Jesus' name.